Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. The past couple weeks teaching at Surah Lishit time, I've really enjoyed singing Mizmor La David and Yedid Nefesh to tunes that I like to sing at that time of Shabbat afternoon. We've talked about the kavod for Shabbat, the dignity for Shabbat that happens when you set a table, even at the end of Shabbat, to say goodbye to Shabbat. And I'm going to do that this week just with that little nigun of the Into the West nigun, uh, because I have a little bit I want to teach, a little bit more than I taught last week. I need to set the table, so to speak, for what I want to teach this week. Because this week, in addition to doing Mariv briefly and Havdalah briefly, we're also going to count the Omer. And I want to get there by teaching a little bit of Mishnah and Talmud and Shulchan Aruch. So in order to do that, I need a little bit of time to set that table together. Now, if you were with me, with us, for the Haggadah Slam that took place just as we entered Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the new month of Nisan, then you already got a little bit of this background, but don't tune out, because I'm going to refresh your memories and also fine-tune a little bit of what I taught there so that I can orient towards what I'd like to teach tonight about Sfirat HaOmer before we do Mariv and count the Omer for this evening. So, I'm going to take you into Yevamot, and if before we entered Pesach and Shabbat, you had the opportunity to print the source sheet, which I called Sfirata Omer and the Plague, uh, then I invite you to pull that up in front of you. And I'm going to teach from that for a few minutes together. So, here we go. We are at the Mishnah. I backed up a little bit to the beginning of the Mishnah that the relevant piece of Talmud comes from, because the Talmud is organized around Mishnayot. So Mishnah gets codified around the year 200 in the Common Era. It's a piece of oral Torah, collected oral Torah. But when the Talmud gets codified about 400 years later, again in oral tradition, it gets organized around these Mishnayot, these earlier rabbinic teachings. And here's the Mishnah that the Talmud, that's relevant to our teaching, gets organized around. Here's the Mishnah. Okay, a man, lo yivatel adam mi priya orvia. A man can't cease, specifically a man, but a person cannot neglect the mitzvah of pruervu, the first mitzvah of being fruitful and multiplying, until he has children. How many, I ask, asks an anonymous voice in the background that's not seen in this Mishnah. There's a conflict between two voices in the Mishnah, two schools of thought classically, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Beit Shammai Omrim, they say, Shnei Zacharim, two male children. Ubi Hillel Omrim, Zachar Keva. If you have a male child and you have a female child, you're good. You can stop. Until then, though, either way, you have to keep having kids. You haven't yet fulfilled your mitzvah, right? Because we want to be fruitful and multiply. This is the mitzvah, to be fruitful and multiply, and it sets the groundwork, the tone of hopefulness for the future, being fruitful and multiplying. Okay, and then they bring a proof text, 
um, for the Beit Hillel's text, which is Zechar and Kevah Bar'am. Bar'am, in the very beginning, uh, we learned that God created both male and female in God's image, and therefore, even if somebody had a male and a female child, it's fine. They've done their job. They don't have to have two male children. That's neither here nor there because quickly in our Gemara, we're going to get away anyway from this idea that we're really just talking about people being fruitful and multiplying by directly having children. At first, in our Talmud, in Yivamot, we get into the direct discussion of how somebody should have children and when they should. Rabbi Yoshua has a teaching. If a man got married when he was young... And he had kids when he was young with that person, that woman who he married in his young age. He should also have children in his old age. How do we know this? He quotes a verse from Ecclesiastes from Kohelet. We're not going to get into that verse because we don't have time to get into that verse. But it has to do with in the morning sowing your seed and also in the evening you should also not withhold your hand. So you should have kids in your young age. You should also have kids in your old age. Great. So at first, we stick closer to the Mishnah. Rabbi Yoshua takes it directly. If you had kids when you were younger and you were unlucky and that marriage ended, probably by the death of your younger wife, because unfortunately in ancient times that was more likely to happen, get married again. Have more kids. Keep going. Make more Jewish babies, he says. Okay. But then the Talmud moves on. It's not just about making more Jewish children directly. It so beautifully keeps expanding onward to a teaching from Rabbi Akiva. What does he say? He says, if somebody, Lamad to Rabbi Yaldato, he studied Torah in his youth, he should also study Torah in his old age. If he had students in his young age, he should also have students in his old age. How do we know? Same proof text, right? One way of having kids is also having students. What a beautiful thing. I'm not going to go much more deeply than that because I think it speaks for itself. Teachers, teachers are also one way of ensuring having a Jewish future anytime. And I don't mean just formally teaching. Anytime we teach kids to carry on the Jewish future, we are fulfilling this verse as well. We are creating a future and hopefulness for the Jewish future. Great. And then we directly leap from this into a story of how we know that Rabbi Akiva himself fulfilled this verse. How do we know this? Once upon a time, Rabbi Akiva had 12,000 pairs of students. They stretched from Givat to Antipatris. And they all died in one period of time. When was that? It was between Pesach and Atzeret. It was in the period of the Omer. It's for this reason right here in the Talmud that we observe the period of the Omer as a period of collective mourning. It's because of this that a whole bunch of folks are going to begin growing out their beards or maybe for some people their hair this is also exacerbated by the fact that we are not going to barbers and hairdressers at this time, but traditionally speaking, on any given year, we might not shave, right, during this window. And it all has to do with collective mourning in memory of these 12,000 pairs of students. 
I got into it, the Haggadah slam, I went another direction with this, and I spoke about the reasons given in the Gemara as to why the students died. That's not what I'm going to speak about tonight. Tonight I'm going to speak about something completely different. Tonight I'm going to speak about what the Shulchan Aruch does with this, what the code of law that comes a thousand plus years later does with the observances that we take on from this period of time, the extension of the morning observances, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, the collective mourning that goes on because of these 12,000 pairs of students who died during this period, right? who either died because of mistreatment of one another, because of a great plague that happened at this time, perhaps because of both. That is left up to our imagination because both reasons are preserved in the Talmud here. But in the Shulchan Aruch, preserved way, way later, in Orachayim 493.1, we get the following deen. We get the following law. This is um, a law that the main body of it, uh, I'm not going to get too much into its organization, but the primary body of it serves certainly as a code of law for Sephardim and for many Ashkenazim, and the gloss upon it as the Ramah, a little commentary that happens upon each of many of the paragraphs within it, serve as rulings for Ashkenazim within the text that uh, is considered the Ramah, that Ramah is considered the gloss within it for Ashkenazi rulings. That's going to be relevant in a second. So here's what we get right here, 493.1. Noagim shalo lisa isha. It is customary that one shouldn't marry, right? That, that somebody shouldn't marry a woman or a woman should not marry. Bain Pesach le'atzeret. Between Pesach and uh, Shavuot. Same wording as uh, our wording in our Talmud, meaning during the Omer. Why would that be? If you were all sitting right here, I'm sure you would shout out at me. Maybe you're shouting at your screens right now. Uh, because of the Omer, because of this collective mourning that's going on, because we're remembering that there was a great plague, that there was a great death, that maybe there was diphtheria at that time, that there's a terrible thing that happened many years ago, and we still remember it, and we don't get married during this period of time, according to this tradition. Asterisk. Some people get married during this time. I know. I've been to those weddings. Uh, I've been to a couple of weddings that happened in that window. There are exceptions to this, but many people do not get married during this window of time. However, the Shulchan Aruch gets very specific about this. What do they say? Uh, here in this code of law, um, we have, uh, 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 let me go back to the actual text itself. Until the 33rd day of the Omer, when we lift some of these morning practices. Because during this time, the students of Rabbi Akiva died. Aval. Let ares ul kadesh betrothal and um, kiddushin. The, um, the the first part of what might happen, the first half of marriage, that's okay. And actually, it goes on to say the second half, even if they do it, we don't punish them. 
I'm going to wrap up quickly here because I want to make sure that we get a chance to do Mariv and Havdalah together uh, within a window of time enough to let me get home and do a fuller um, Zoom out of Shabbat with you. And anyway, it's hard to do this solo and just talking to you alone. I wish you were all here with me so we could make this a conversation and not just teaching this solo. Um, I don't want to rush this, but I do want to get to the point of this. What's my point? You're not supposed to get married in this period of the Omer, but it's okay to get engaged. So the Jewish wedding ceremony today is two halves smushed into one. If you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, to a chuppah, you've probably heard a rabbi or a cantor under the chuppah explain this, that usually we divide it by often reading the ketubah in between the two just before the sheva brachot, before the seven blessings take place. And once upon a time, engagement, the first half, took place at one point, and then there might be a year or more that took place between those two things. We have a mirror of that in our society, right? You can get engaged, and then it might be a very long time before you actually get married, right? It could be a really long time. Some people have long engagements. They like to plan big and good weddings. So why would it be okay to get engaged during this time? but not get married. This goes to something that I spoke to earlier this week at the Siyum Bechorot, which has to do, I think, with managing a regulation of hopefulness, allowing for us to put a cap on joy, but not to stop the progression of life, God forbid, right? I think we have to let a little bit of joy seep in, even when Ave Lut is taking place. How can you stop a couple in love from getting engaged? You can say to them, don't get married. Hang on. You got to wait four weeks and change. But to promise one another that someday, when all of this sadness lifts from us a few weeks from now, something great's going to happen and we're going to celebrate life together, that's a feeling I can get behind. That's a feeling I think a lot of people can get behind. I understand, I think, what's being gotten at here. Uh, There's a line being drawn. At Siyum Bechorot, I spoke about how the very last Mishnah in Mishnah Shekalim, in uh, the eighth chapter, the eighth Mishnah, has to do with the prohibition of bringing Bikorim, of bringing first fruits when the temple isn't standing, but there not being a prohibition on bringing the um, on bringing a half shekel, at least according to Rabbi Shimon at the end. And I have the same theory about that. You can't bring fruits that might rot in the meantime when the temple isn't built again. But if you want to bring tzedakah in the hopes that the temple might be built, right? A little bit of hope we're not going to quash. A little bit of hope we're not going to quash. So my prayer for you this week is that hope remains. And it's actually a very real and live and specific hope for those actual engaged couples who are out there. There are people who are postponing weddings right now. Probably millions across the world, but certainly some in our community, our very community. My hope and my prayers for them and for everyone who is postponing simcha is that you feel 
it not as a cancellation, but as a postponement of joy. Just a postponement, because we're going to get back there. We're going to get back there as a community, as families, as individuals. We're going to get back there with love and with joy, and we're going to dance together, even if it has to be with masks and gloves on our hand. We're going to get back there. So I say that with love, and now let's stop in some Mariv together and say goodbye to Shabbat with some dignity. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.